The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Here we are. I know I've played this before in past Octobers, but I can't help it. When I think of mysteries, I think of young me under the covers watching this show on PBS, introduced by Vincent Price and then Diana Rigg with Edward Gorey animation. What an opening. And how delightful those shows were. Jeremy Brett's Sherlock Holmes, David Suchet's Hercule Poirot, lots of Conan Doyle, lots of Agatha Christie. Mysteries for the whole family. A puzzle we tried to figure out. Not a shocker, not gory, G-O-R-Y. These weren't Stephen King novels come to life, as we might see on the big screen. Not a blood fest. Which King called childish, by the way. He said his efforts to shock people or to scare people with the macabre elements and the gore was the same impulse that he had as a child, trying to shock people at the dinner table by opening his mouth wide while he was eating making them look at the disgusting food inside. That's how he felt as a writer. A kind of sneaky little laugh. I think critics try to make it more profound than that, but think about this reversal. I just told you that all the mystery series on PBS, with its murders but not real violence, was suitable for all ages. King just told us that his violence, the gore-fests, came about thanks to his childlike urgings. And that's the rub with mysteries, as our guest today will discuss. They're appreciated by children and still appreciated by grown-ups. These are not childish things we set aside. And even when we return to them as grown-ups, there's something childlike about our fascination with them. Is that a circle that can be squared? We will find out. Jonah Lair and the Mystery of Mystery today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Hello. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. We have a lot to get to today. I'm loving October, as always. What a great freaking month. Man, man, oh man. So let's get to Jonah Lair in a moment. He's one of those powerful minds who make connections and dig into the science. And is a, he's a bit of an all-rounder, as our friends across the pond might say. A thinker, a writer, and his subject today is mystery. Why are they so compelling? What happens in our brains to make them that way? I'll tell you one thing. I try to stumble through in my question, explain it a little bit. <laughs> he fielded it, but you might be a little lost. I was watching an episode of Miami Vice recently, don't ask me why, and Crockett and Tubbs went into an apartment. No problem, no problem here. And all of a sudden they notice on the floor a cup of coffee and a cigarette. Bam, they know they're not alone. This assassin, the greatest assassin in the Western Hemisphere. This guy has somehow stupidly left his 
coffee and cigarette right there on the floor. He was hanging out in the living room, apparently, smoking and drinking coffee. And suddenly, people arrived earlier than he expected. So he scrambled into the back room, and they knew it. They knew he was there. They had seen something. Well, it's kind of a plot hole that he was such a great assassin. He's sitting there smoking, eating a donut, and drinking a cup of coffee. Anyway, what reminded me, what interested me, was how fast this mystery arose. Room, normal, conversation, normal apartment. Whoa, coffee cup and cigarette. Mystery. Who? Why? Where now? Jonah's book digs into this kind of question. How our brains are equipped to deal with just this kind of question. We react to it. We respond. Why is that? Maybe. What happens in our brains and why have we evolved to that point? Maybe we as a predatory species and potentially prey as well need to be ready, right? We're trained to look for things like that like that coffee cup and cigarette. Maybe that comes from when we were, I don't know, walking across the savanna. There's a rustle in the tall grass. Danger. Alert. Be ready. Maybe that's food. Or maybe I'm about to be food. Something's different. What? Let's figure it out. Okay. Anyway, those are my sort of Armchair theories. Let's hear what Jonah, the expert, has to say. And he ties this all into not just our love for mysteries, but the way Shakespeare works on us and other writers. We have Harry Potter in here. Excellent, excellent stuff. And I also have some Instagram news for you with some Instagram commenting on favorite novels for October. So let's take a quick break, come back with our listener ideas, and then hear from Jonah Lair. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, 
and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, Instagram. Like I said, I think I've told you this before. I've started dropping by the IG account. It's run by History of Literature, the main account, which is the wonderful... Well, I don't know if I can share her name. I haven't asked her. So I'll just say by a wonderful person. All the images, all the main posts, that's all her, one of my business partners. She's great. And then there's me, the little goofball with the monocle wearing my Chekhov costume. The real Jack Wilson. I think that's my handle. So I've started stopping by. I was always afraid before to spend too much time there because I'm so thin-skinned that one negative comment just deflates the heck out of me. That's my deflate gate. Too thin-skinned. Far better to just avoid reviews than to get punched in the face, which is how it feels sometimes. But hey, I get it. Not everything is for everyone, and sometimes people need to rant and vent, and sometimes it's deserved. God knows I'm a flawed creature, and this is a flawed show. Deeply flawed, some might say, on both counts. And they do say (laughs) on social media. So anyway, I've been dropping by IG. uh, Is that how I should call it? The IG. And I feel bad when I get there because there are so many wonderful commenters there. I should focus on the positive. And I really should have been spending more time there than I have. So please check it out if you're an Instagrammer and you haven't been there before. And hey, guess what? This is a great time to do it because we're giving away three signed copies of Jonah Lair's new book, Mystery, A Seduction, A Strategy, A Solution. It's win, win, win for three of you over there at History of Literature Pod. Our friends put up a post that asked for favorite spooky horror or thriller book of all time and some History of Literature podcast listeners chimed in. Jason Ramsey says, quote, there are so many great contenders, but I'm going to have to give a shout out to The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. That is a creep fest, end quote. Indeed, that will, if we hadn't just done so much James in August and September, so much beasting and so much jungling, we would be tempted to read that one this October, maybe next Halloween. I love that story. I know people, it's, I know opinions differ. I think it's one of the few books of James that people will argue is overrated. So much of James's work is underrated or sort of forgotten. I think Turn of the Screw is one of the few that people urge on one another, and then people say, I didn't get it. I didn't like it. Well, I don't care. Turn of the Screw is like tightrope walking across the edge of a razor blade. It's highly recommended. D. Craig 77, which may or may not be Daniel Craig of James Bond fame. Who's to say? I don't know. How can you tell? He's a fan of the podcast, of course, but I don't know. 
his Instagram handle, Mr. Craig of James Bond fame. 77, maybe that was the year he graduated from something or other. Anyway, he chimes in and says simply, The Exorcist. Good choice. Stephen Margavio likes House of Leaves. Anna Ross 2.0 says, quote, definitely not a favorite, but the only book that's ever truly scared me is Salem's Lot, end quote. I love this comment because of what she implies there. It scared me, but it's not a favorite. <laughs> that's why I stopped going to movies like Nightmare on Elm Street or Halloween. I thought the movie's purpose is to scare me, and I don't want to be scared. I don't like the feeling of being scared. I'm scared enough. When I look in the mirror every morning and face what it means to be Jack Wilson on planet Earth for another day. Just kidding, of course. You guys know I haven't looked in a mirror for decades. Those eyes staring back at me are way too horrifying for that. How about that for a scary movie? Just put a mirror up on the screen. <laughs> That's why Hollywood is... Never come calling. Anyway, <laughs> it's as bad as my Christmas idea. Okay, anyway, <laughs> Jesus saves his birthday. Anyway, I don't want to be scared by a movie. And that's the purpose of those movies, like Nightmare on Elm Street. So if it's a good, scary movie, I don't like the effect it has. And if it's a bad, scary movie, it's pointless. If you didn't like swimming, would you go jump in a pool hoping it had water? No. You'd be jumping into a... A bad situation for you. Either way, that's lose-lose. If it's water, you're swimming, which you don't like to do. If it's no water, you break both your legs and lie there, hoping they don't decide to fill the pool now with you in it. Okay. Arto Mononen says, Short stories like The Cask of Amontillado and A Rose for Emily. Okay, well, we are two for two there, aren't we? Here at the History of Literature podcast, Mike and I dug into A Rose for Emily, and Evie and I explored the cask of Amontillado, which might be my favorite Edgar Allan Poe short story. Excellent stuff. So, lots more goodness over at the Instagram account. I hope you check it out and sign up for your chance to win a free book. One more break, and then our guest today, Joan Allaire, telling us all about mysteries. After this. Okay, joining me now is writer and journalist Jonah Lair, a New York Times bestselling author and former Rhodes Scholar who's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Nature, and many other publications. He's here to talk about his new book, Mystery, A Seduction, A Strategy, A Solution. Jonah Lair, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. So we're coming up on October, and your book is perfect. The introduction starts with Agatha Christie, and we're in the world of mystery and detectives and all those great October things. But this book makes a couple of moves that I really like. One is that it covers the effect that mystery has on our brains, and the other is that you illuminate a lot more of literature than I would have expected. So let's back up a little bit and start with the project. What inspired you to write a book about mystery? 
Oh, it's a slightly embarrassing confession. Um, but my interest Ooh. in the specific subject <laughs> actually began with my son watching a YouTube kids app. Ah. And uh, for those who don't know, if you haven't had the pleasure of engaging with the YouTube kids app, it's a pretty dark app. I mean, it, it, it is an amazingly efficient babysitter. It'll, the algorithm will send your kids down these very esoteric cul-de-sacs because it gives them complete control over what they watch. So yeah. it really is this very interesting mirror into what kids are interested in. And my son in particular got very interested in mystery boxes and surprise eggs. So ah. one of the big tropes of children YouTube videos is the surprise egg, which is Again, this is not the most interesting uh, place to begin, but but essentially what they do is they give kids a paper mache egg filled with toys and the kids punch a hole into the egg and then start removing toys one by one. Hmm. So it's a narrative device that essentially turns the discovery of toys into a mystery. And there was one video in particular by a, a famous YouTuber is one of the most popular YouTubers in the world named Ryan and his channel is Ryan's Toy Review where his parents really popularized the surprise egg. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's their 34th video and it's now been seen over a billion times. And essentially what they do, they wake him up in the morning and there's a big paper mache egg and it's filled with his own hot wheel cars and they give it to him and he just pulls out one car after another. And my son was mesmerized by this video, three-year-old mm -hmm. boy memorized every single car that was coming out of the egg um, and just couldn't couldn't watch it enough times. And that got me really interested in the power of the surprise egg. Why was it such a popular trope, almost a cliche on YouTube kids? And and that that I have to admit was the intellectual beginning of my interest in mystery as this cultural hook. Right. Okay. Let me tell you a little story about my kid when he was little, because I'm going to relate it back to this. So I was uh, in the car with my kid. Uh, he was about three or four and we were riding somewhere and it was in the autumn and he wasn't or winter maybe. And he wasn't used to being outside in the dark so much. And, and because usually he'd be at home in bed, but this was like four 30 or five and it was getting dark, you know, early. And he said, uh, what are we doing outside in the dark? Why is it nighttime? And I said, oh, because in the winter, it gets dark early. And he said, darkerly is not a word. <laughs> and I, I had this moment where I thought, no wonder people get so fascinated with linguistics. Because how did he know that darkerly was not a word? There were a million words that he didn't know if they existed or not. But he was suddenly able to say that one didn't exist. And it must have been because... He had a grasp of grammar that you couldn't put together an adjective and an adverb and have a, you know, an ER and an LY together. And it made me think their brains are so interesting when they're this young. And it sounds like you had a similar moment where you you thought, well, we we grown-ups, we read mysteries and we watch mysteries, and that's all fine. And we all know that we love a good mystery, but to see it play out in such a, a protean way with a, a brain that's forming and you think, is this evolved? Is it, is it something that's inherent to us? Is it true of other animals as well as humans? Like it, I could see where it would open all of these doors for you. No, there's something very clarifying about the, the intuitions of toddlers and yeah. in particular what they're interested in. And you realize 
it's so hard for them to actually show us exactly what they're interested in because we're constantly telling them what to be interested in or yeah. limiting options. And sadly, it took this somewhat dark app made by Google to really give them you know, this infinite universe of options that they could choose exactly which rabbit holes they wanted to fall down. And it turns out to be rabbit holes full of surprise eggs. Yeah. Um, that's what they're interested in. And I think the optimistic take on it or the positive take on it is it does reveal the intensity of childhood curiosity. Um, they are drawn to mysteries. They are, that is what they're most interested in, the unknown. Um, not just a kid playing with Hot Wheels, but Hot Wheels inside a narrative device that obscures what's going to come next. Um, and I think that, that, that got me interested in the larger subject of mystery and how that same cultural hook, the unknown, um, is used by Agatha Christie and JK Rowling and Hamlet. And, you know, you can see it repeat throughout culture as just a way to keep us interested, the way to engage our attention. But, but it really was, you know, I think there's something about the three-year-old mind that, you know, you can see there's a purity to their interests, a purity to their responses, a candor. Hmm. Uh, I think that's what first got me interested in mystery. Do you think, I mean, I was trying to figure out if there's some reason why we've evolved to be curious. And one thing I thought is, you know, it would help us acquire knowledge and knowledge would help us become uh, uh, adaptable and, and superior beings if we're constantly acquiring knowledge. Uh, or also curiosity might lead us toward uh, potential dangers. If you're, you know, you see something that's not quite right. You under, I just watched an episode of Miami Vice where they walk into the room and they see a a coffee cup and a donut that the the assassin has has stupidly left sitting on the floor, and they realize that he's hiding in the back room, and it gives them a a, a sense of you know if they solve that little mystery, somebody's here, and it it helps save their lives. But I'm wondering if if we know is this just theory, or is there some way of knowing why it is that your son is so interested in mystery? Or, or can you see it in the brain chemistry or what tools do you apply other than just my armchair quarterbacking here to determine what it is that pleases us about mystery? Well, I mean, one of the ways I explain in the book is in terms of prediction errors. So if you give if you study the activity of dopamine, dopaminergic neurons in the brain, which they help regulate our attention and you establish a pattern the brain will get bored by that pattern very quick because it understands it. Mm. And so the brain is always striving to be as efficient as possible, to be as lazy as possible, to consume as little energy as possible. And so from the brain's perspective, if it can predict a pattern, it's not worth paying attention to because we already understand it. So instead, what you find generates the biggest signals from these dopaminergic neurons is not the pattern we understand, it's the pattern we don't. It's what scientists call prediction errors. So you establish a pattern and then you violate it. You break it. You give a reward we don't expect or you withhold a reward we do expect. That's when we pay attention. And I think that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective in the sense of if we understand something, we don't need to focus on it because we understand it. And so we should offload it and and focus on what we don't understand. So the brain is naturally wired to be drawn to mystery and the unknown and the unexpected. And I think you can see this, you know, as I said, in its purest form in little children who are most interested in mystery. You can look at this in terms of eye fixation studies. So you measure how long a young child will look at something as a measure of interest, even before they can speak. 
Um, and what you'll find is that they're most likely to stare at something they don't understand, something that breaks the laws of physics. Um, they have a, obviously a very, very rough grasp of the laws of physics. But if you show them something that violates it, that's what they're interested in. So it is one of the recurring themes of the science of attention, which is that we're most interested not in the predictable pattern, but the unpredictable one. And I think that's, you know, that's what drives the surprise egg phenomenon on YouTube kids. It's why the third act of Law and Order is always the shocking twist, because mm. that's that's what we're there for. That's what we want. Right. OK, so I see I'm looking at your book subtitle now, A Seduction, A Strategy and A Solution. And I can see the seduction pretty clearly that that when there's this disruption in the pattern, it arouses our curiosity because it's something that we need to solve. And it's something that that is not something uh, that we're lazily ignoring or, you know, it, it, it arouses like our it, interest. It's an itch you want to scratch, right? Yeah. You want to solve that pattern so you can ignore it. Right. And then I, I can see the satisfaction of a solution where once you do figure it out, then you know, you can return to normal and, and you can put this disruption aside and you can get back to other things that you need to turn your attention to. But what I'm not sure about is what you mean by strategy. How does that fit in? I think the strategy, I mean it more from the perspective of the creators, of the artists. How, ah. how I think I think through sheer instinct and talent and experimentation, I think there's a long tradition of artists reverse engineering the mind. Um, my first book, Proust was a neuroscientist, was really about, it was a speculative cavort about artists who anticipated some of the big ideas of neuroscience, um, you know, decades, hmm. hundreds of years before, um, simply because they wanted to understand how the mind worked because they wanted to entertain their audience and they wanted to capture reality. Yeah. Um, and I think, in a similar way, I think artists have this very, very precise grasp of our psychology just just by trying to make good art, art that interests us, art that keeps us engaged, art that moves us, art that leaves us with a sense of wonder and awe. And that, by definition, requires them to have some model, some theory of the mind. And so I think the strategy of mystery is something that Agatha Christie understood very well. It's something that the writers of Law and Order understand very well. It's something that I think Shakespeare understood profoundly when he was creating his characters. Um, so I think the appeal of mystery as a strategy and how to deploy it for maximum effect, that's uh -huh. that's really what I mean in terms of the strategy. It's, it's what we can learn from all these artists who have been using mystery as a tool to engage and edify and and grab our attention for really thousands of years. Right. Okay. So the strategy might be the pace or the doling out of clues and information as the puzzle pieces sort of start to uh, put themselves together so that the the artist who's in command of their craft is able to make the experience sort of bridging that gap from the initial curiosity of the the dead body on the floor or the the mysterious theft or whatever and the solution where we feel like all is right with the world and we now know that order has been restored the strategy is how do you entertain people or how do you get people to follow you as you go from point a to point b exactly you know how you get people to follow you as you lurch from one mystery box to the next yeah. Um, it's much easier said than done. It's very easy to watch Star Wars and notice that George Lucas begins with a mystery box. What is the force? What is a Jedi? Who is this guy? Obi-Wan. It's mm. obviously much, much harder to actually pull it off. Yeah.
Right. Are there examples that you found where people didn't pull it off, where, uh, I guess it's <laughs> in some ways, those are probably all the books that aren't published, but yeah. uh, are there any uh mystery writers or anyone who had a hard time with this or who talked about the difficulties they had in either revealing too much too soon or or having other technical problems or, or maybe it would be a, a draft I guess I'm thinking of where they would say you know the problem here was I screwed things up I made the reader wait too long or how do we know how the strategy is working other than people like it and it becomes a bestseller certainly there are great mysteries that don't become bestsellers. I think you can see, for instance, in the arc of Agatha Christie's career, she does have this peak, in my humble opinion, where she figures out the formula and it's full of surprise and feels fresh. And I think, you know, she's a, as she confesses in her autobiography, she struggled a lot with plotting. And I think plotting to her was, was an incredibly difficult art. I think she got really good at it. And then I think towards the end of her career, she almost got too good at it. Mm came a little formulaic. And I think that's the, you know, that is the challenge for all to stay with the detective story. The challenge for all detective writers is it is of course a formula, but it can feel formulaic because then it becomes predictable. My favorite law and order episodes are those, they're still formulaic. You still get the mystery solved in the 41st minute and they're 42 minutes total, but they somehow don't feel like a formula. And I think that's, that's always the difficult balancing act for the detective genre in particular. But certainly I think, I mean, it's it's the general challenge of good art, which is finding the balance between, on the one hand, you wanna give people the unknown, you wanna surprise them, you wanna show them the mystery, but you can't make it too mysterious because then it's just confusing, then it's just chaos and randomness. Right. So it's that, it's that very difficult dosing question. Um, psychologists call it desirable difficulty. There's no prescription for it. I think the science can just identify it, but the science can teach you how to execute it. Um, that's where the art comes in. Mm. And there seems to be with the most popular mysteries where there's a detective. I mean, one of the things that's always fascinated me about the genre is the way it has two narratives going at once. You know, you have the the narrative that happened that led up to the crime or, or the event, and then you have the narrative of the detectives or the police officers or whoever who are trying to recreate the story, and they're going forward in time, but they're also kind of building this narrative that's happened previously in time. And as a reader, you kind of get to see both at once, and sometimes it's it's fun to watch the detective, even if we're not that interested in what mystery he's solving, just because the detective is so much fun to spend time with and to watch him or her work. It seems like we want the detectives to be a little bit smarter than us, but not possessed of fortune teller powers or, or you know, it, it needs to be a mystery that we ourselves could solve if only we were a little bit smarter and could observe a little bit better. But it doesn't take great leaps in logic or lucky guesses or anything like that. Is that kind of, I guess what my question is, do we put ourselves in the minds of the detective to try to feel something good about solving this puzzle ourselves? Or do we like watching someone else do it? I think part of the allure of the Sherlockian detective, and I think the Sherlockian detective was actually invented by Edgar Allan Poe in the middle of the 19th mm -hmm. century. What makes that form so seductive and so perdurable is, I think, when you're spending time with a Sherlock, is the faith that it will be solved. Yeah. Um, I think that helps us get over the initial confounding mystery, right? The impossible crime. 
you put up with the first 30 pages of the story because you know Sherlock will solve it. And right. so it gives you this sense of faith and closure that you know in the same way the you know when people always talk about law and order being such a comforting formula on the one hand it makes no sense because these are grisly crimes. You know like there's nothing comforting about it. But what is comforting about it is the assurance of closure. And I think that's because part of the detective trope is this notion that in the end justice will be restored we'll find the bad guy we'll solve the impossible crime i think that's why we want that deductive detective who's going to solve it even if we can't um as soon as sherlock appears on the scene kind of we can kind of let out a breath and be like ah okay we're in good hands here it's going to be yeah. solved in yeah, and in some ways, the the greater the mystery at that point, the more it just raises the stakes. It's like watching a trapeze artist or something where it gets more and more exciting because we come to know that the more confounding the puzzle seems to be, it just means the solution. We're in good hands with Conan Doyle, that the solution yep. is going to be all that more, the more satisfying. And it has to be confounding, right? If it's predictable in the first act, you're not going to stick around for the third um, so it has to be full of surprises. It can't be the person on page 12 who seems obvious. Right. That's the one you know for sure. So it's, you know, it's those two things in parallel. It's the impossible crime. We, we, we as a reader can't explain accompanied by the detective, accompanied by the detective who, we you know, will explain it. Whenever I think that, you know, we're going to exhaust the genre because everything will become predictable, I think of like my 12 year old son reading Agatha Christie and shouting out loud when he gets to certain pages and, and saying, you know, no way. And it's like, well, it's, you know, it's sort of like I used to watch Siskel and Ebert and they would say that this, you know, this is a tired formula and it's something we've seen a million times. And I think I haven't even seen it once, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, there's a reason the formula gets a little tired, which is that it works really, really, really well. I have a feeling we'll be spending time with detectives as long as people are reading novels. Yeah. Okay, so how can we translate the lessons that you've learned in studying mysteries as an art form and into the real world? It sounds like there are other examples you're able to see with people who aren't just writing and reading mysteries? You know, one that probably crops up for me the most in my everyday life is the mystery of human beings. Mm. And this is something I kind of approach in the book from the perspective of Shakespeare, who he uses a technique called strategic opacity, which is I think is best illustrated by Hamlet. So Hamlet as a narrative had been around for hundreds of years. Shakespeare made one crucial alteration to the original story of Hamlet, which is that in the original version, the murder of the king, Hamlet's father, is a public fact. Uh, his uncle suspects him of seeking revenge, so Hamlet pretends to be crazy, so his uncle doesn't suspect him of seeking revenge. Of course, he seeks revenge. What Shakespeare does is he makes the murder of the king a secret. Everyone thinks he was killed by a serpent bite, but Hamlet still pretends to be crazy, which all of a sudden makes no sense because his because the murder of the king, Hamlet's father, is a secret, his uncle doesn't suspect Hamlet of knowing and thus seeking revenge. So all of a sudden Shakespeare takes this character who initially was, you know, driven by the most primitive primal motivation, right? Seeking revenge for your murdered father. Mm. And now he's a mystery. Now he makes no sense because he's still pretending to be crazy, but for reasons we can't really explain and justify and his mom seems to think he's crazy too it's not clear hamlet knows if he's crazy or sane so he takes this character who's on the one hand very very simple in the original version and makes him very very complicated very mysterious very unstable um and i think that's what makes shakespeare's hamlet so interesting mm. um he 
strategically opaque. And this is a technique Shakespeare uses again and again. And I think it's a reminder to me in everyday life that that people are mysteries. And I think that's something we want the people in our lives to be predictable. We want to be able to, you know, we want to know why they do what they do. Uh, we neglect the power of circumstance, context. And I think just to tell myself, people aren't predictable and that's what makes them so interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something I constantly remind myself is just the reason we're drawn to Shakespeare's Hamlet is the same reason we shouldn't just get frustrated when people don't do exactly what we expect them to do. Mm-hmm. And maybe the reason why it's so frustrating when other people try to explain something that we've done in an easy way. I don't know totally. if you've had that experience, but you know, where someone says, oh, well, you just think that because of X or you just yep. did that because of Y. And, and you think, actually, there were about nine different things that probably went into why I just did that. Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's a well-known human bias that when people do something, we always default to their character. We say, you know, they were speeding because they're not careful. They were late because they're careless. She fell because she's clumsy. And instead, she may have just fallen because, you know, there was a stone that she didn't see. She may have been speeding because she was in a rush to pick up her kid from school. He may have been late because you know, his, his child was late getting out of school. I mean, there are a million reasons. Circumstance is always changing. And instead of defaulting to the simplest explanation, which is that someone is X, we, you know, we should take into account the fact that the world is really complicated and people do strange things. You know, Shakespeare understood that is what makes people interesting. That is what makes them magnetic. That is why we want to watch them and be with them, be with his characters and why we keep revisiting his characters. Um, But it's a lesson that's all too easy to forget in everyday life, Um, that the mystery of people, it's not a bad thing. It's it's actually what makes life worth living. And it's what makes literature worth reading. I think Uh, I'm thinking of all these different examples Two come to mind. But maybe before I I give you my two, why don't you tell me about Harry Potter, how he fits into this? You know, Harry Potter is another thing I've discovered, like many parents through my children. I Mm -hmm. think it was uh, Mm -hmm. it was a series I'd always lazily dismissed as. as, (laughs) Well, how, how old were you when they were coming out in your 20s? Um, No, in my late teens. Yeah. I vividly remember being an undergrad in New York City and watching children line up at midnight to get book seven on the day it was released and and being somewhat dismissive of it. And then I started reading my daughter, Harry Potter. Mm. This is now six years ago and just being mesmerized, falling in love with the narrative Mm. Um, and then rereading it again the next year with her. And then we read it again three years later. So I'm now beginning it with my son. He's mercifully graduated from YouTube Kids into Harry Potter. So this is now my fourth go round. And just the richness of the characters, number one. So I think we talked about the mystery of Hamlet. I think Snape um, is Rowling's Hamlet, uh, an incredibly complex, mysterious character who only gets more mysterious the more you read the book. Yeah. Um, both on the first read and then on your second and third read, you understand Snape even less. I think Harry also becomes less obvious. On the one hand, it's this very simple tale. It's the classic frog who turns out to be a prince. And yet I think Rowling is doing something very interesting with textual interpretation. 
Mm. And, you know, and there have been some great academic studies that I cite in the book as talking about Harry Potter as a lesson in hermeneutics and the power of reading and rereading texts and the difficulty and kind of inherent ambiguity of text. And that's, I think, what Dumbledore's what the prophecy is all about, which, of course, she borrowed from Macbeth. Um, I'm, I'm kind of rambling here as a yeah. Harry Potter fanboy, but <laughs> but I think, I mean, the basic lesson of Harry Potter is that one can reread it again and again and again. Like all great art, it's it's an infinite game. James Cross, a theologian, he's got this great distinction between finite games, which is Monopoly, it's baseball, it's football, it's games you play to win, and infinite games, which are games you play to play. And great literature really is an infinite game in the sense that you never solve it. In fact, the more you play it, the more you read it, the more mysterious it becomes. Yeah. No one reads Hamlet and thinks they figured Hamlet out. No one, I think, if you're reading Harry Potter well, you don't think you figured Snape out or Harry out or Dumbledore out. Um, they become more mysterious. And that's what makes it an infinite game. Right. And for the first time reader, the whole thing is pulling us along of who is Harry really? Why is he the way he is? Why is he the chosen one? Are these people around him good? Are they helpful? Are they not helpful? It's everything is and everything is brand new to him. It's all a big mystery of you know, how did how do I travel into this new and strange world? Absolutely. It's an incredible act of world building. And just to circle back to your initial point about the joys of experiencing the world and literature and language uh, through your child's eyes, I think there's there's a special joy about reading the book with a young child, the Harry Potter series, because you see it also just works as a straight narrative. I mean, Rowling was very influenced by detective stories. She's since gone on to write kind of classic mm. detective novels. Yeah. And you can see the influence of the detective story just because each book is essentially structured like a whodunit. Um, and I think so. So a child will experience the book just on the level of the whodunit. Um, you know, who is responsible for this terrible thing happening at Hogwarts? And and as an adult, you're mesmerized by the grownups, by the characters, by these characters who are so rich and complicated and and full of motivations you can't parse. Yeah. So to be explicit, I said I had two examples. One of them was the opening of Gatsby, where he talks about uh, how his father had told him that unless you've walked in a man's shoes, you don't really know what he's like or something like that. And then just the mysteriousness of Gatsby himself and the way that he's sort of this elusive and, and shadowy character, uh, which I think is part of the the big appeal of that book and the draw of that book. And the other, which is, it actually is almost written like a detective story in a way um, with uh, the narrator, although it's, I, I think, uh, I, I wouldn't want to push that analogy too hard, but it's it's almost like a, he's almost a, a doctor of uh, John Watson or something in <laughs> Um, But the other one uh, that came to mind as we were talking earlier was, I don't know if you're familiar with the James Joyce story, The Dead. Oh, God, I haven't read that in years, but yes. Yeah, and the way that when he's looking at his wife on the stair and he thinks he knows her and knows what she's thinking, and then it turns out she's thinking something different altogether and just the beauty, the the severe beauty, the, the... sorrow as well as joy of uh, the revelation that we never really know what's inside someone else's mind, that we just cannot ever really share it as intimate as we might want to be. And as as well as we think we know someone, 
it's just something that's always going to remain a, a bit of a mystery for us. Just the the beauty of that story. So as we're coming up on the holidays, I'm always... Uh, oh, man, Jack, uh, you're killing me because now I want to go back and rewrite my book. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> that's a perfect example. I mean, I'm going to go read The Dead now, but now I'm going to... Yeah. Maybe for the second edition, I can insert that because that's... I, I mean, that sounds like a good <laughs> of... Um, the mystery of human beings. Yeah, it really is. And so now what I want to conclude with here is to turn the tables on you a little bit, which is to ask if your deep dive into the world of mystery and, and learning how things work on our brains and so forth, if you find that it's changed the way you write. I mean, you probably already were intuitively doing a lot of these things where you uh, sort of raise a question in the reader's mind and then seek to answer it and so on. But I'm wondering if it's made it, if you found it helping your own nonfiction writing in any way. Uh, it's a really interesting question. S certainly in this book, I mean, you know, I use the traditional technique of when I describe in the second chapter, I've got a chapter on magic tricks and kind of the magic tricks of painters. And I wrote that chapter many different ways. Mm -hmm. In one version, I never tell you how the magic trick actually works. It's this very <laughs> famous trick involving a puzzle and magicians hadn't been able to figure out, other magicians hadn't been able to figure out how it was done for years and years. And and I spent time with the geological statistician who actually reverse engineered and figured it out. You know, at first I wrote the chapter and said, it's no fun if I tell you the magic trick because like all magic tricks, the actual solution is a little disappointing. It's mechanical. Um, it's not actual magic, but that didn't work. Uh, I, you know, I show it to friends and family and they just, their first question was always, but how did he do it? Uh -huh. People know they want, they want the mystery to be solved on some level. Yeah. Um, and so then I tried putting the solution up front so it wasn't so deflating. Um, and that didn't work either. So it ended up being kind of a classic whodunit formula where the solution comes at the very end and there's this build to it. So I definitely borrowed some of the techniques of Poe and Doyle and Christie where you try to pace out the mystery and you try to keep introducing complexities and surprise. But, you know, I'm no artist like these guys. Um, what they do, I think if anything – this book, writing this book just helped me appreciate the sheer artistry and genius of what they do, you know, of what Shakespeare did, of what Rowling did. Um, so really, you know, in the end, the book to me was just a meditation on just why great art works and trying to understand it a little bit better. Mm, beautifully put. Let's leave things there. The new book is called Mystery, A Seduction, A Strategy, A Solution. Jonah Lehrer, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much. That was so fun. Okay, there we go. My thanks to my guest, Jonah Lair, for joining me. That Oh, I learned so much from him. Such a smart guy, and what a great book. Highly recommended for that mystery fan in your life, or for yourself. Maybe you are the mystery fan in your life. Here's what's not a mystery. Or wait, maybe I should present it as a mystery. Folks, there's something strange happening over at the Instagram account, History of Literature Pod, something everyone's buzzing about, a break in the pattern. What could it be? Turn the page upside down for the answer. Actually, I can't have you turn the page upside down, can I? I suppose you could stand on your head, but what good would that do? Your mind is good enough to hear words in whatever direction they are, unless they're backwards. So I'll tell you the answer to this mystery backwards so as not to spoil it. Are you ready? 
Question. What unusual event is happening over at the History of Literature podcast Instagram account? Answer. Did you figure it out from that clue? Let me try it again. This time I'll play it forward. Ready? Question. What unusual event is happening over at the History of Literature podcast Instagram account? Answer. I buried Paul. (gasps) Whoa. Just kidding. I couldn't resist. By the way, did you hear that I buried Paul? That's just your ears. I was saying cranberry sauce. Perhaps Satan jumped in and affected your ears. Let's try this again. Question, what unusual event is happening over at the History of Literature podcast Instagram account? Answer. We're giving away signed copies of Jonah Lair's book, Mystery. A seduction, a strategy, a solution. Mystery solved. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.